Hello and welcome to The Conversation Weekly. This week, Nobel Prizes. We're going to start with science and dive into the work of some of the newest Nobel laureates to find out what their research made possible. This approach looks like it could be a really, really effective way to think about treating neuropathic pain. It's really incredible when you learn about the simplicity of the chemical mechanism. It seems like we should have discovered this ages ago. And we hear from a friend and colleague of Abdul Razak Gurners, the latest Nobel laureate for literature, about his work. His vision was a cosmopolitan one before cosmopolitanism became a kind of trendy term. I'm Dan Marino in San Francisco. And I'm Gemma Ware in London. You're listening to The Conversation Weekly, the world explained by experts. Six Nobel Prizes, 13 laureates from 11 countries, and we'd be remiss not to mention that 12 of them were men, only one a woman. But I imagine it's been a pretty momentous few days for all of them. Yeah, and our colleagues across the conversation have been busy working with experts to explain the significance of these Nobel Prizes. In this episode, we're focusing on the stories and achievements behind three of the Nobel Prizes in physiology and medicine, chemistry, and literature. So first, let's talk about the human body. The 2021 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine jointly to David Julius and Ardem Pataputian for their discoveries of receptors for temperature and touch. To find out more about the science behind the work of Julius and Pataputian, I called up Kate Poole. She's an associate professor in physiology at the University of New South Wales in Australia and an expert in the processes in our bodies that underpin our senses of touch and pain. The breakthrough made by the two Nobel laureates influenced Kate's own work very directly. But before we get into all that, I asked her to explain what's actually going on when we touch something. As soon as you touch something, you have nerve endings in your skin, and those nerve endings have sensors in them. So when these little receptors open up, you actually get a very small electrical current across the cell, and that starts a signal that can then move along the nerve into the spinal cord and then up to your brain. And so those sensors are actually small molecules, and each of these molecules will respond to a different type of stimulus or input or signal. And that stimulus or that input could be a change in temperature. It could be something really hot. It could be indentation as you press on something or even vibrations or stretch. So we can actually distinguish between all of these different inputs. So they're, they're essentially slightly different senses. So thinking about touch just as a single sense is a little bit misleading. Let's talk about the Nobel Prize. So what was kind of the big mystery uh, until the 1990s that these Nobel laureates were recognized for? Like, what, what didn't we know? And then what did we learn that this prize kind of hints at? So the concept of biological electricity has actually been around since about the 1700s. But to be able to do these studies, you really need a technique where you can somehow create an electrical circuit that has a, an individual cell as part of that circuit so that you can measure the currents in that cell. Um, and that's really quite challenging. So it was in around the 1950s that a lot more work was done by people like uh, Hodgkin and Huxley that really defined these concepts that there were in fact these channels 
in the surface of the cell that could carry these currents. And when a particular stimulus um, is applied to your, your skin, these ion channels can open. It was much more difficult to work out what the exact molecules are that form these channels. And with improvements to, to the techniques to be able to measure these electrical currents in cells in around the 80s, that's when we started to see people starting to identify different types of ion channels. But with these sensory receptors, the next challenge is, okay, so we've got this method where we can actually measure electricity in a cell, but how do we then go about meaningfully applying a temperature change to an individual cell or applying some kind of pressure or force to a, a, a very tiny and fragile cell without actually destroying it? So the insight that David Julius had, and I think this is really ingenious, is he was thinking about how do we sense temperatures? And he reasoned that, well, okay, capsaicin makes chilies hot. So maybe there's some overlap with sensing that heat and sensing painful uh, temperature stimuli. So he went and looked at what all of the molecules are that are um, found in the sensory neurons that tell us when something is very hot. And he individually then started looking at all of those different molecules in cells that don't normally respond to capsaicin and just asked which of these molecules makes those cells capsaicin sensitive. Then they went back and they asked whether or not that same molecule responded to painful heat, and it does. So the one receptor um, will signal to you that you've eaten a really hot chili or that you've put your hand on a hot plate. And what is the name of that receptor? TRPV1. So it stands for Transient Receptor Potential Vanilloid 1. <laughs> okay, uh, TRPV1. I think I'll stick with the abbreviated version yeah. <laughs> here. Okay, so we've got TRPV1. That, that must have been a huge moment for biologists and neuroscientists to be able to say, like, wow, we actually know the specific receptor, the specific molecule that results in sensation. Was it a huge deal? Absolutely. Um, and it also sort of like stimulated more and more research to try and find what the other molecules are that respond to different temperatures. So this was the, the heat receptor. What about cold or what about warmth or gentle changes in temperature? Huh. I would have assumed it would have been different, you know, more of that receptor does higher temperature less, but you're saying that's not the case. That's actually not the case. And I think this is one of the great insights that comes from some of this work. So both David Julius and Adam Pataputian separately started looking for the cold receptor. And again, they used a trick where they used menthol, which we feel is cooling, and worked out what was the receptor that responded to menthol and then went back and checked. And yes, that was our cold receptor. And so that's a, a quite highly related molecule to TRPV1 that we call TRPM8. So there's about four or five different TRP channels and they'll respond to different temperature ranges. But Pataputian worked on more than just temperature. He was actually looking at touch and pressure, which is what we started this conversation with. So what did Pataputian uh, discover and how does that process work? Pataputian discovered the first mammalian mechanosensitive ion channel in 2010. So to unpack that a little bit, because that sounds quite complicated, ion channels are receptors that sit in the surface of the cell and they open when you apply a pressure. 
So for many years, people had known that there were these uh, mechanically sensitive ion channels or mechanoreceptors in our nerves, but we just didn't know what the molecule was. And it was extremely challenging um, to try and work out how do we actually go about identifying that particular molecule? Because there, now we have to think about how do we scale down some kind of pressure application so that we don't destroy the cell that we're trying to study. Yeah, you, you can't use menthol, you can't use capsaicin, you got to exactly. do something else, right? Yeah, we don't have that kind of analog that you had for temperature when you're thinking about pressure. So rather than looking in the, the sensory neurons themselves, which is what a lot of different groups around the world have been trying to do, of like all of these different ways of trying to find out what these molecules were, what Adem and his team did was they looked at other cell types and said, are any of these other cells that are much easier to work with, do they respond to mechanical pressure with the same kind of electrical current? And they found actually it turned out to be it's a neuron that had turned into a cancerous cell. You can grow up lots of them and work out what all of the molecules are that are in there. And then it became actually really an exercise in perseverance. If you look at all of the molecules that are expressed in a cell, sometimes what we can do is we can look at what the sequence is for the gene that encodes that molecule and get some idea about the function. But that's not really possible with, with ion channels or sensory receptors. There's nothing there that you can look at and go, oh, yeah, that's definitely going to be an ion channel. Or that's definitely going to be a sensory receptor. Oh, interesting. So you've basically just got to create a list of things that have a broad set of properties and then go through sequentially one by one and say, is it this one? <laughs> is it this one? <laughs> is it oh this one? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and it was the 73rd candidate in their list that turned out to be piezo one So this is really an amazing um, example of perseverance. Okay. So what does that mean? Why is that important? It was a huge stimulus for the field because really this research had been going on for so long about how do we actually respond to these pressure inputs and we could see the activity. We just didn't know what was doing it. And it was this advance of, of identifying piezo one and then realising that the related piezo 2 molecule was actually one of the touch receptors in our sensory neurons. Okay. And uh, the names for these are piezo one and piezo 2 Yes. So they were, they were named piezo um, from the Greek for pressure. Kate, I want to now talk about your work. So you've built on uh, Pataputian's work. So... Tell us about what it is and give us kind of the brief overview. So um, I've worked sort of like in a, on a couple of different elements of aspects relating to how we sense uh, touch and pain and then how individual cells in your body might actually be able to have a sense of touch of their own. So we were interested in this question of, of how do you set that, that difference in threshold between your very sensitive touch neurons and your less sensitive pain neurons? So obviously you don't want your nerves that signal mechanical pain to start firing when you have just a very, very fine or gentle touch. That would make our experience of the world very, very painful. And so we were looking at um, what we think of as an accessory molecule that you find in some of the sensory neurons. So in our neurons that sense um, very gentle touch, you have piezo 2 and this accessory protein that's called STOMEL3 together. 
and then that makes them quite sensitive. But there's a, an aspect of this that can actually feed into some pain states. So you can end up with a disruption that's called neuropathic pain, where something that should just feel like a gentle touch actually feels painful. And you can end up with this kind of pain state if you've had a nerve injury or in some cases diabetic neuropathy can lead to neuropathic pain as well. And one of the things um, that we found in this work was that if you increase the amount of this accessory molecule, that's uh, linked to neuropathic pain. So basically you're ending up with more of this accessory molecule and it's making your pain-sensitive neurons more sensitive to um, any kind of pressure. And then you feel that as painful rather than just as touch. We were able to take that information and um, find some small molecules that disrupted the function of that accessory molecule. And it turned out that that was actually quite an effective way in some models of these states to reverse that neuropathic pain. So the state of the work at the moment is we don't have a drug that you could comfortably give to humans, but we do know that in principle this approach of trying to block these signals in the periphery looks like it could be a really, really effective way to at least think about treating neuropathic pain. So, uh, I mean, treating the source, not the kind of homecoming, as it were, um, that seems directly born out of the work the Nobel winners did this year. So what else does this field have in store? So what I'm really excited about, one of the consequences of the discovery of piezo one and piezo 2 was the realization that actually piezo one it's in all kinds of cell types through your body. And this comes back to this concept of how much of our biology is driven by mechanics. If you think about your bone cells, they're responsive to mechanical inputs. So is your cartilage, so is your, your heart and your vasculature. Surprisingly, things like red blood cells and immune cells have like mechanical components to them. And this kind of need to respond to a mechanical stimulus is actually really quite broad throughout our physiology. And you can even see that it sort of like comes up in certain disease states. So if you think about cancer, the first uh, sign that, that a woman might be developing breast cancer is that you can feel that lump in the breast. So then you've got like an actual physical mechanical change around where the tumour is forming and it makes the surroundings more stiff. And I think one thing that's really exciting now is thinking about, well, we've got that stiffening around the tumour and that seems to drive the, the ability of those tumour cells to break away and form secondary tumours or metastases. And it turns out that pressure-sensitive receptors like piezo one are found in some of these cell types. And so now the question is, what are they actually doing there? What significance does you know, this pressure sensing in other cells have for our understanding of physiology and physiological disruptions? Pressure. Pressure might actually be a huge factor in the human body and like across all sorts of systems. I mean, is, is, is it that broad or am I kind of overblowing what you're talking about here? 
Um, I don't think so, but of course I'm a little <laughs> bit biased. <laughs> wow. Um, Kate, it's been fascinating talking with you today. Thank you so much for sharing your own research and um, information as well as putting uh, the findings for this year's winners in perspective. It's been an absolute pleasure. That is Kate Poole there at the University of New South Wales. You can read a story she did celebrating the work of David Julius and Artem Pataputian on theconversation.com. Now we're going to switch from medicine to chemistry. The Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences has today decided to award the 2021 Nobel Prize in Chemistry jointly to Benjamin List and David Macmillan for the development of asymmetric organocatalysis. Like the winners of Physiology and Medicine, Dave McMillan and Ben List are two chemists that essentially opened up a new branch of chemistry that a lot of people just take for granted today. To get a better sense of the chemistry award this year, I called up David Naguib. I'm a chemistry professor at The Ohio State University, and my specialty is in organic chemistry. Okay, so you're professor of organic chemistry, and uh, you happen to know the winner of this year's chemistry Nobel Prize. So explain how you know Dave McMillan. That's right. Dave was my teacher and mentor when I earned my PhD at Princeton. He's always been someone that I knew from the very first day I met him. He had a special gift. What I really liked was that he could identify some of the world's biggest problems, even before you realized they were problems. Actually, another thing that he did really well like a great coach. I think he recruited really top students from around the world. And then he coached us all to our full potential um, towards that common goal, the championships, if you will. Dave won the Nobel along with Ben List for asymmetric organocatalysts. Let's start with asymmetric, the first word in this. What does it mean in this context? Yep, there are three components to this discovery, and asymmetric is absolutely the most important part. Um, So if I can just start bigger picture... Um, just to remind everybody that organic molecules are, are sort of the basis of all living things. Um, when you taste some ice cream, that flavor that you taste is an organic molecule. When you take a medicine uh, to treat a disease or a headache, for example, um, that's an organic molecule that you're taking. And it's interacting with receptors in your body in a certain manner. So the mechanism by which um, small organic molecules interact with these large biological receptors oftentimes is likened to a lock and a key mechanism. In order to you know, open a, a lock, you have to have the perfect key that fits. And if you want to open a really important safe, you can imagine that lock has to be more and more intricate. And so where does the asymmetric part fit in? Imagine you have a perfectly precisioned key that fits perfectly into the lock, but then on top of it, you could have either a right-handed or a left-handed form. And so you might have a glove that perfectly fits your right hand. You try and put it on your left hand, it just won't fit. So we've got molecules that can be left-handed or right-handed, for example. And they are mere images of themselves, right? They are the same structure, they just are flipped. Is, is that correct? Exactly. It's like being on the wrong side of the state. Got it, got it. How does this handedness fit in with biology? So uh, it turns out that all of the amino acids in your tissues, in your cells, in your body, even your DNA has handedness to it. And so when uh, we we make a small organic molecule, a complex one, ideally as a medicine uh, to treat a disease, we want that to fit with these biological receptors in your body that all have handedness to them. And so the the molecule that you hope to be a drug um, also needs to have that same handedness. Why is it important to make sure that if you're producing a molecule, you have the right handedness of it? Handedness is really important. If you take, say, the left-handed version 
of a drug and it does not fit in the right-handed receptor, best case scenario, it does nothing. But the worst case scenario, and there are certainly uh, many examples of this, is that it does maybe the opposite of what you want to do or, or a lot of medicines work and are effective by being really precisely targeting a certain type of receptor. If you accidentally target a different receptor, um, perhaps one that causes a, a different disease or, or a different side effect that you might not want. Okay, so asymmetry, we've got that down. Uh, catalysts, let's talk about catalysts. What do they do? How do they do that? Right, so in the same way that you might use yeast uh, to bake a cake, for example, um, in that same way, we use catalysts to make a reaction possible. And so the, the way a catalyst specifically works is it lowers the energy for a chemical reaction to occur, you know, a, a faster way to do something. Um, we use catalysts all the time in our daily life, um, actually on in the chemical industry uh, standpoint. So if you're looking at me and you see color, the colors on my shirt or the colors on your screen, those are made with catalysts. Um, if you that smell of a shampoo or the taste of candy, really everything is uh, made in catalysts, including medicines. And so when we're trying to to make new molecules that could be potential better therapeutics, we oftentimes use catalysis to do that. Okay, so uh, we've got catalysts. They make reactions either a possible or feasible or make them faster or make them much easier. We use them for everything. Wonderful. So what is an asymmetric catalyst? It is a catalyst that helps you to make just that one left-handed or right-handed form of that molecule that you'd like to make. Um, and actually, 20 years ago, another Nobel Prize in chemistry was awarded actually to a team of chemists who found out that you could, in fact, develop catalysts to make either the left-handed or the right-handed form. In that case, the catalyst they used employed precious metals. So these are metals that are not commonly found uh, in the Earth's crust, also known as rare earth metals. Um, so that makes them expensive. And it turns out that you're not, you're not really supposed to eat most metals that you find in the Earth's crust. <laughs> and so they oftentimes can become toxic. And so a lot of energy is expended first in extracting that metal in order to use it as a catalyst, but then removing it again at the end of the day. If you make a medicine, you want to make sure there are no trace metal impurities um, that can have toxic side effects. Okay, so we've got uh, asymmetric catalysts, but they use rare earth elements. That's not great. Uh, how does biology do make asymmetric molecules? Um, nature does it via these factories called enzymes. All of them are large, complex organic structures. Some of them are made of up to 10,000 amino acids. And so the way you can think about this is a big, beautiful factory or assembly plant where every part of this complex structure is really important to precisely make the exact molecule that you want in exactly the right hand. Okay, so we've got the enzymes, we've got these rare earth element uh, ways to do asymmetric chemistry. Our drug companies and chemists around the world using the rare earth metals to do this right now? And if so, why aren't they using enzymes? Yeah, it, it's interesting. So the state of the art um, has been the metal catalyzed approach um, for several decades now. And the reason why chemists might want to use the metal catalyst approach rather than nature's enzymes is that you could generalize them. Nature has over thousands of years evolved to make very specific chemical reactions work. And so very specific molecules you could make with an enzyme. But if you want to make a new complex molecule that might be used for a medicine, for example, you could either spend a really long time evolving a perfect factory-like enzyme, or you could generate these metal catalysts that can be made sometimes um, in the matter of just a day or two. 
Of course, everybody knows that the enzymes tend to do it much more selective. And so for decades, many scientists have been thinking about how do you mimic an enzyme? How do you replicate it without having you know, to go through the entire process? We had enzymes, tens of thousands or thousands of amino acids working together, very precise, very complicated, making left-handed or right-handed molecules. Then we had a rare earth element, asymmetric catalysts, and then Dave, your PhD advisor, and Ben List came up with a much more efficient way, a much better way. So how does that work? So let's start with amino acids. This is what you might find in a cheeseburger, and you digest it, and you break up that protein into an, its individual amino acid components. And molecularly speaking, as an organic chemist, an amino acid has an amine and an acid component. And so that amine is really the, the business end of this catalyst right now. The amine is the functional group or the reactive part of the molecule that combines with a building block. Oftentimes in these cases, that building block is called a carbonyl group and it condenses onto that carbonyl group and activates it. So that amino acid catalyst can then bind selectively to that component that only has the two carbon atoms and it makes it more reactive. And so although that component was just staring at the four atom component previously, when it has the catalyst, all of a sudden it combines. And not only does it combine, right, that's the catalytic reaction that's promoted, but it combines in only one way. Because that catalyst that's docked on, right, it's a right-handed or a left-handed catalyst, allows that other component to only come in either on the right side or the left side. It tells it what to do based on its structure, right? The amino acid that is used has left-handedness, has right-handedness. And it's really the amino acid that A, promotes the reaction, but B, also guides it to one-handedness or the other. Is that a fair reading here? That's right. It's really important that it does both of those things. And up until this moment in early 2000, nobody thought that a small organic molecule could do both of those things. It's, it's really incredible when you learn about the simplicity of the chemical mechanism by which these catalysts dock on to a, a chemical and then perform the reaction and then undock and come off of that chemical. It seems so simple. It seems like we should have discovered this ages ago. So are people using this, you know, are there drug factories out there making medicine using these asymmetric organocatalysts? That's right. And really, there, there are all kinds of medicines treating diseases that range um, so broadly from diabetes to heart disease to, to even, I just saw that uh, Tamiflu is now made using these organocatalytic uh, platforms. Yep. So David, you also work with these asymmetric organocatalysts. So what do you do? And from there, tell me what the future looks like in this field. Oh, that's a great question. So I, as an organic chemist, I wake up every morning really passionately thinking about how can I make new molecules, ever more complex molecules, ever more complex architectures, presumably to make better medicines one day. And so how do we do this? We're always trying to find new catalysts that can enable new types of chemical reactions that you couldn't do before. So new ways of gluing molecules together. And so one of the strategies we're developing uh, in my laboratory at Ohio State right now is to harness free radicals and the energy of free radicals, essentially to weld molecules together that couldn't possibly be connected previously. But most people know that the more you learn, the more you realize you don't understand, the more things you know that you don't know. Um, I, I would say this is, this is constantly what's going on in the field of modern chemistry. 
is that the more really highly enabling tools that we develop, the more difficult problems that we can go tackle. And we are now tackling um, some rare diseases, some incredibly uh, difficult to target diseases that even um, 10 or five years ago, you could never imagine a molecule, a small organic molecule could even be created into a medicine to treat these diseases. But the more complex our understanding, um, the more things we know, then the more harder problems we try and tackle. David, I think that is a fantastic place to end the episode on. So thank you so much for speaking with us today. It's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you for bearing with me. It's my first podcast. (laughs) You got me through my nerves. I appreciate it. That is David Naguib there from The Ohio State University. Another scientist whose former PhD supervisor just won the 2021 Nobel Prize, this time in physics, has also written a piece for the conversation. Paolo Barucco worked with the Italian physicist Giorgio Parisi, one of the trio of scientists celebrated this year for their work on complex systems and climate modeling. We'll pop a link in the show notes. How will we actually tackle the climate crisis? And who gets to decide? When the school strikes start happening, just realised that uh, no one else was going to do it for us, you know? Local people actually have a stake in the process. A lot of developing countries came together threatening to walk out, largely because of what they perceived as lagging action by the world's wealthier nations. As Glasgow gets ready to hold the 26th United Nations Climate Change Conference, The Anthill has a new series, taking you inside the fight for our future planet. I'm Jack Marley, Environment Editor for The Conversation, based in Newcastle in Northern England. And I'll be hosting Climate Fight, the world's biggest negotiation. Over five episodes, we'll speak to experts influencing climate policy and some of the people around the world who are living with the consequences. Because when it comes to addressing the climate crisis, Big questions need answering. How much money should the world's richest countries give to protect people in the poorest parts of the world from droughts, flooding, and the effects of climate breakdown? People are dying, people are losing their homes, and it will become even worse as we move forward. There's just not enough finance to be wasted. Does geoengineering offer a way out of the climate crisis? It's essentially licensed a kind of a reckless burnout, pay later mentality, in which they are really carrying on with business as usual, continuing to burn fossil fuels. We'll dive into these issues and some of the latest academic research to help you understand the decisions facing world leaders. And I'll be in Glasgow for the COP26 summit. There, with the help of experts, I'll learn what actually happens when the world gathers to tackle the climate crisis. Subscribe or follow the Ant Hill podcast so you don't miss out. Okay, Dan, for our final insight into a Nobel laureate this week, we're focusing on the prize for literature. The Nobel Prize in Literature for 2021 is awarded to the novelist Abdul Razak Gurna, born in Zanzibar, active in England, for his uncompromising and compassionate penetration of the effects of colonialism and the fates of the refugee in the gulf between cultures and continents. Born on the island of Zanzibar, Tanzanian writer Abdul Razak Gurna is only the sixth African-born writer to win the Nobel Prize for Literature. 
Gunnar came to the UK as a refugee in 1968 after a revolution in Zanzibar and has lived here ever since. To find out more about Gunnar and his work, I called up Sushila Nasta, his close collaborator and friend. My name is Sushila Nasta. I'm the founder of a literary magazine which is called Wasafiri, which is a Swahili name for travellers. And we use it in the sense of cultural travelling in a kind of metaphorical or literal way, um, writing across worlds in another way. And I'm a professor of modern and contemporary literature. In fact, just become an emerita at Queen Mary College and was at the Open University. And, and great. And we're talking to you today because the Tanzanian writer, Abdul Razak Gunnar, has just won the 2021 Nobel Prize for Literature. Let, let me ask you, how did you react when you first heard the news? What was your immediate reaction? I was sort of in disbelief. I got a kind of pop up on my phone and I was so excited because we've been friends for years and we published him in Wasafiri for years. So he's no stranger to us. And I was just over the moon because one of the things Wasafiri has been doing for years is promoting works by African Caribbean and South Asian writers, diasporic writers. Now we've called it international writing, but it's got a focus on diasporic migrant writers. And Abdul Razak's been publishing with us for years. He was a contributing editor at the beginning of the magazine when I founded it. And his work has been little known for too long, and it really deserves recognition. And it has been well known for the last, you know, 15 years or so, but it took a long time and there still are preconceptions about what he writes about. Mm. Why so? Because people either have perceived him as an African writer, and African writer is a very, very large category. I mean, Africa is a huge continent. Or he's sometimes been seen as a writer in exile, writing about migrants, um, asylum seekers, and so on, which he certainly does. But he's not just telling stories about victims and people who've got nothing to give to the society. In fact, what he's trying to do is create a very balanced world where parallel universes coexist with each other and attempt to break open what are often preconceived categories of otherness and difference to show that histories are all constructed histories and particularly the history of colonialism. So he in his in his novel Paradise, for example, which focuses on a small community in East Africa in pre-colonial, pre-European colonial times, he's making quite a strong critique, for example, of Arab colonialism or the injustices that were going on from within those small societies across different local territories. So the point is really it's not one thing or the other. Mm-hmm. And it's very easy for people who uh, want to read things through certain eyes to to categorise them like that. And I know when he was shortlisted for the Booker with that novel, I remember listening to the Booker programme that night and one of the panel whom I won't name said something like, oh, well, we don't need another thing to fall apart. We've already had the novel about colonialism. Things Fall Apart is a 1958 novel by the Nigerian author Chinua Achebe, which tells the story of pre-colonial life in southeast Nigeria amid the arrivals of Europeans. And just really briefly, he came to the UK as a refugee when he was 18 and fleeing Zanzibar. And then he started studying in Christ Christ College in, in Canterbury. You were also in Canterbury. Did you first meet him at that stage or when, when did you first start kind of knowing about him and his work? I met uh, Razak in the early 80s because I was founding Wasafiri. He had a job at the University of Kent soon after and quite soon became involved, I think, in about 1987 
as one of the editors of the magazine. For a short while, it was at the University of Kent, but mostly in those early days, it was at my house and he used to come to meetings here. He helped read copy. He critiqued other writers. He reviewed other writers. He contributed short stories. So we became friends at that point. And he's really kept at it. You know, I think the first 15 or so years of his career, he had a a big problem, which may be obvious now in terms of how publishers read and receive these books um, in getting published. People didn't pick up how wonderful he was. Mm. Because his first book was published in 1987. That was Memory of Departure. And he's written nine more books since then, hasn't he? So one of the the quotes from the um, chairman of the Nobel Committee, Anders Olsen, is that his dedication to truth and his aversion to simplification are striking. Is that something that you recognise in in his writing? Is that something you would pick out? I think what's striking to me is, you know, it's very easy if you're reading from within a Western literary tradition to read the African novel in a particular way. And, you know, what Abdul Razak Gurna has done is, in the first place, broken down the idea of the African novel. There are many, many areas of Africa, and he's dealing with a very tiny area of East Africa, in particular Zanzibar, and the cosmopolitan, the early cosmopolitan communities that mix there who are heterogeneous. So his, his vision is a cosmopolitan one before cosmopolitanism became a kind of trendy term. And in doing that, he takes us into these communities, whether he's talking about you know, a small area of Zanzibar, whether he's talking about the injustices of the situations that migrants um, encounter maybe when they come to Britain, the the problems of, of being an immigrant in Britain. But he does it in a very balanced way. It's not a kind of polarised thing. It's not just a question of trying to redress differences, to give voice to the other, if you like. What he's trying to do is show that there are these parallel worlds and we all live next door to each other and they all speak to each other. And it doesn't matter whether you're a big person in that world or a small person in that world. You may be an unlettered figure, but nevertheless, those stories are just as important as some of the stories we try to put at the front of our noses. And his work is kind of part of a, at least in the UK, quite a response to this migration or diasporic kind of community of writers in kind of the 60s, 70s, 80s. Is there a category we could put him into or is that too reductive? He certainly was influenced by people like Salman Rushdie when Midnight's Children came out. He he often spoke on platforms with a writer called Carol Phillips. There were a whole load of writers in the late 1980s and 1990s who were questioning how histories are constructed. And I think he would fit, if you like, there. But then he could also place him amongst writers who've uh, written about and challenged Islam in different ways. Um, you know, there, there's a female writer called Leila Abu Leila, whose work would sit very nicely with his. And of course, he speaks in his own voice. He's a wonderful storyteller. He brings characters alive. You know, in many ways, he's a realist writer. You know, he could compare him to someone like Dickens if you wanted to. And you say he, he was influenced by some people, but who has he influenced and where is the wider significance of this award for him in the people he, he has influenced? I know that he's influenced people by the work he's done in the field. He's been an activist. He was editor for a while of the Heinemann African Writers Series. He gave a huge amount of his time to enterprises like Wasafiri, which is a small literary magazine. He's been very generous in being on platforms with international writers, in sharing his ideas, in dialoguing 
So I think his influence has been wide, but he's also led a life as an academic, as a professor of literature. He's been busy (laughs) teaching and giving in that way to all his students. Okay. And do you think that the decision to to award him the prize is a signal of the moment we're living through? Or, yeah, what do you think it says about this moment? I think if there is a reason, it is to do with the fact that we do live in a world that is now made up of migrants. Everyone, in some sense, is a migrant now. And people are beginning to realise, even if they think they're rooted in a community, they might not be. So, you know, most people, even who may feel they're firmly Anglo-Saxon British, aren't necessarily if they start investigating their histories. We all have mixed roots. Cultures only grow by meeting each other. Mm, Absolutely. Just to end, if you were to recommend a listener who's never read one of his books, where would you recommend they start? Where's a good place? Gosh, well, I think two of my favourites are Paradise, which is the one that was shortlisted for the Booker in 1994, and By the Sea, which is set in in Brighton Hove, and it's about a conversation really between two very different kind of migrant figures. And it, in fact, even opens up that debate about who is a migrant because migrants come in all kinds of different shapes and sizes, of course. Absolutely. Well, I'm sure you must be delighted and I'm sure there'll be time to celebrate with him in due course. Thank you very much. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Bye. You can read some more analysis about Abdul Razak Gurna and his writings on The Conversation. We'll pop some links in the show notes to that. We've also been running expert analysis about the winners of this year's Nobel Peace Prize and the economics prizes too. To end this episode, we've got some recommended reading about the approval of a new malaria vaccine, a major breakthrough for the African continent. This is from Ines Gosana, health and medicine editor for The Conversation in South Africa. Hi there. This is Ines Gosana. I'm a health editor for The Conversation based in Johannesburg. Both my recommendations today are stories about the malaria vaccine. The vaccine was approved by the World Health Organization last week, and it marks a major breakthrough in the fight against malaria. In the first story, Yunus Anyango Owino, a medical entomologist at the University of Nairobi in Kenya, explains why it's taken over 30 years to develop this vaccine. Her approach is one of cautious optimism. While she knows this vaccine will not end the disease, She believes that it will reinvigorate the fight against malaria. My second recommendation is a story by Jay Shri Rahman and Shanae Oliver, both scientists with South Africa's National Institute for Communicable Diseases. In their piece, they warn that the vaccine alone is not going to end malaria, but it is an important addition to the Malaria Control and Elimination Toolkit. Happy reading! Ines Kosana there in Johannesburg. That's it for this week. Thank you to all the academics who've spoken to us for this episode and to the conversation editors Mike Hopkin, Holly Squire, Moina Spooner, Stephen Kahn and to Alice Mason for our social media and promotion. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio on Instagram, conversation.com or email us podcast at theconversation.com. Also, sign up for our free daily email. Just click the link in the show notes. If you're enjoying The Conversation Weekly, please leave us a rating or review wherever podcast apps allow you to. Or do it old school. Just tell your friends and family. The Conversation Weekly is co-produced by Mend Marawani and me, Gemma Ware, with sound design by Eloise Stevens. 
Our theme music is by Nita Sal. And I'm Dan Marino. Thanks, as always, for listening. <laughs>